Good evening, everybody. Thank you very much for coming out to our latest Bad Talk. Thanks for taking some time out of your week to uh, come and, and share ideas, share thoughts. That's what Bad Talks is all about. Uh, we've created Bad Talks as a forum where we get together four times a year um, and we talk about topics that are affecting all of us as business people, all of us as uh, creative folks within, within the building industry. Um, and we get together and talk about these ideas openly. Uh, we, we, share, we share ideas, we share thoughts, um, and we do, this, um, we do this so that we can kind of continue to grow as an industry together. Um, Bad Talks is a self-sustaining model. We're always looking for topic suggestions. This topic that we're covering tonight, which is a, which is a, very, a, a very big topic right now, um, was a suggestion. So please, uh, if you have any ideas for, for topics that you would like to discuss, visit badtalks.com, send us an email and let us know what you'd like to talk about, and we'll put it under consideration. Also, if you, uh, if you know a professional, maybe your colleague, who you think would be great to be on a panel, let us know. Um, chances are that, that uh, there's, there's definitely a spot for that person. So thank you all for, for taking time out of your week to come join us. Um, pass it over to Kyle, and we'll, we'll get going. Thank you, John. Uh, thank you all for coming uh, on this random Wednesday evening in January. We're amazed and delighted to have such a wonderfully huge crowd. Um, it's especially meaningful that the audiences have been gradually getting bigger and bigger for these talks over the past five years, uh, which means I think we have definitely hit on something for which there was a need and a wish and a demand. And so we are honored to be able to work with and serve all of you uh, who are part of this residential design and building community uh, that we like to be part of also. Um, tonight's topic, I think, needs very little introduction. Um, as it happens, we were planning these talks last summer, uh, and at the time had no way of realizing just how topical um, tonight's subject would become in the intervening months. Uh, so we actually lucked out once um, on this. Um, as John mentioned, this was a suggestion. Uh, I don't think he's actually here, but Carl Ivester of New England Shutter Mills had actually come up to me about a year ago and sort of said, you know, this is really something that you guys ought to address. Um, and we thought, yes, indeed, it is. Uh, and so we are trying to do that. Um, in the spirit of tonight, I should also mention, in the context of these talks, you hear way too much from me, and also you hear occasionally from Paul Wright and uh, John Kilfoyle. Um, but the fourth member of the Bad Talk team, who is really the one who does the yeoman service of pulling all of this together and making it all work and keeping everybody roped in and getting all of the PR done and everything, uh, is somebody that you may not actually see in a public way, but I just wanted to say, Linda Kochman, where are you? <laughs> Linda is the one who really makes this all happen, so I, I hope you'll go out of your way to express your appreciation to Linda. Um, that being said, I would also like to introduce uh, the four people who are going to facilitate tonight's talk. Uh, as you know, if you've been to these bad talks before, we like them to be very collaborative. So we will not be talking up here and then having questions afterwards. Um, 
either Linda or John will have another microphone very much like this one. Uh, if you would like to ask a question or if you have a comment you would like to add at any point during the discussion, just kind of wave at him. He will come over and give you the microphone because we like these to be very collaborative discussions. Uh, in particular tonight, we have a number of kind of could have been panelists here um, who also have kind of uh, interesting and viable and, and kind of useful things to say on this topic. So I hope you will all not be shy about making this an industry-wide conversation uh, because everybody's experience and everybody's position is a valid part of the, uh, the dialogue here. That being said, um, tonight we have architect Catherine Truman, uh, principal of Catherine Truman Architects in Cambridge. Uh, here, uh, Paula Daher from Daher Interior Design in Boston, who is a principal of her own firm. Uh, I'm going to pass over and talk about the gentleman on the end, uh, Von Salmi, who is principal of Von Salmi and Associates uh, and a board member of MNARI and Bragby representing the building side, and Vaughn actually used to also be heavily involved with the Classic Group, uh, which was once a building company here in the Boston area. And next to Vaughn, I have a special thing to make. Unfortunately, Sarah Barnett, our uh, real estate developer, uh, came down with the flu this week and was unable to join us, so we were very sorry about that. However, we were delighted <laughs> that on very, very short notice, uh, Emily Grandstaff Rice, who is a senior associate with Arrow Street and is also very heavily involved with the BSA's Women Principals Group uh, and has spoken and written on this very topic quite a number of times, uh, was available and willing uh, to join us. And so we are delighted to have Emily here tonight uh, to fill things out. Now, without further ado, having heard too much from me as usual, I'm going to mention that when we were planning the session and in all of the discussions we had and kind of all of the back and forth with the community about promoting it, there was never any doubt in the kind of com the communications we had about what everybody's take was, uh, which was sort of, well, of course we need more women in all these positions. It's a no-brainer, why, why do we even really have to discuss this? That's kind of sad. So in order to do a kind of editorial thing and be devil's advocate, just to sort of get us started, what in fact are the reasons for and against different gender balances in any given company? You know, if there are primarily male companies, if there are primarily female companies, if there are companies that have a huge kind of mix of all of the above or any other gender that you care to mention, what kind of practical differences do those things make? And why are we here addressing this issue tonight? And so I will let anybody who wants to jump in with that hot question uh, get started. We'll get to that. I mean, you, you, if your background is germane to the answer to the thing, that's a good lead-in for, uh, for backgrounds. And it, you, know, you could also let somebody else grab this if you want. But you've started now, so. <laughs> well, I'll be glad to jump in. Uh, Mansplaining right off the bat. Right? <laughs> uh, I, again, I defer to my panel members here originally, but I think one of the, the key things is is that uh, 
we have an industry, of course, the building industry has been around for ever since we've had human beings. But what we have is an industry, of course, it's male dominated. Male dominated, I mean, you know, we can go back to the 20th century and just look at when women voting, women had the right to vote, uh, women's suffrage and the like. So it's a relatively new concept having women in the workplace compared to the longevity of modern man that's been around for maybe 40,000 years. So I think having that and looking at how things evolve, you know, I remember as a, a youth growing up in the 50s thinking, you know, I already had a penchant for architecture, thought I'd want to get involved in that industry. And I was thinking, gee, by the year 2000, I wonder what buildings will be like. You know, we'll have all these great things. And like a country singer, Steve Earle says, where the hell is my flying car? It's 2000, and it hasn't happened yet. So we look around us, and yet we still put our pants on one leg at a time. We still take and uh, have try to get three meals a day. There are many things that we've done for hundreds, if not thousands of years as human beings. So here we are now in this relatively modern time here where we're introducing women into the workplace and trying to get rid of, I think, notions that we've had and notions that we've inherited, okay, uh, from hundreds of years of an industry and trying to dispel those notions and get rid of them. And I think one of the things that was an eye-opener for me early on in my career was I was fortunate to take and have success with some of the women that I was introduced in the various industries. I'm trained as a landscape architect and I ran landscape uh, companies uh, because it's more profitable than being in professional practice. And uh, one of the things I had was when it came down to equipment operation, particularly in the nursery, trying to get uh, tree spades in around the trees and not damage the trees. If I put a guy in there, he'd damage five trees time to, trying to get one out. But if I hired a woman, she was so careful. I never had any damaged trees. And the light went on that, gee, you know, there's something going on here. And is it because of this individual, or is it because she's a woman? As I became introduced to more and more women in the industry, I began to see that there was a distinct difference between the way men and women operate. And the analogy I've used here is like, you put men, we're like a battleship going out of the harbor. We're steam full head of, full straight ahead. We leave all this flotsam and jetsam in our wake. But if you put a woman at the helm, steaming out, there's no flotsam and jetsam. She leaves a very clean wake. And it's because I think the attention to detail, women have a different set of skills than men do. We're different as men and women. So why don't we celebrate that? And why wouldn't you want to have both facets involved in your company? I have long promulgated the thought to many of my contemporaries running businesses that, look, try and get as many women as you can involved. Several things are happening. Women, first of all, going into a male-dominated industry, they seem to work twice as hard because it's like a fish trying to get upstream against the current. They're swimming and they're swimming harder. And they work twice as hard, whereas as a man goes in, 
he thinks it's a given. Oh, I'm a project manager, so I'll just do my job. But women are working twice as hard to prove themselves. They shouldn't have to do that, but yet they do. So I think we have this innate uh, ability to take and move beyond where we are if we choose to do so. But it's the same thing as the analogy I was using earlier with some folks I was talking with. If you live at the equator, you never notice the heat. But if you take someone from Toronto and you put them on the equator, they notice the heat. So the analogy there is, is that if you've been involved in this industry as a male for 47 years I've been involved in the construction industry, there are some things that you just take for granted. You don't necessarily uh, see and you are not aware of those things until all of a sudden you're put in a situation where you're down at the equator and you begin to notice there's a difference here. So when you notice those differences, why why are those differences there? And speaking from, again, that male perspective, that's what I would see going on. Right. Well, for our other three panelists, I, I think... Well, actually, I think one of the things that you just touch upon, and you could actually take this entire topic and split it into two really easily, and one is the professional fields of architecture, interior design that do, I mean, just look around the room, we're like 80% women here tonight, um, that that's one thing. But then you look at construction. And I think I've had this conversation a couple times tonight already. Well, when you go on a construction site, how many women do you see? And it's like you can you can count it on you know a couple of, a hand or two, you know. Um, and so I think those are actually completely they're almost two completely different conversations about um, you know what's the what are the issues around the the professional and design and creative services versus the construction services. So there's a couple things that I want to say. Number one, not all of us put our pants on the same way. Some of us put our dresses on head first. <laughs> so. I haven't had that experience. <laughs> well, and I think that gets, gets to sort of the heart of what we're going to talk about tonight, which is, is there value in difference? And the answer has to be yes, because we see things from different perspectives. And those perspectives allow us to understand the issues in the built environment in a different way, and frankly, to be more holistic. Because we're not designing buildings or creating spaces just for men. Well, maybe you are somewhere, but that's a different issue. But you know, <laughs> we're, we're, we're designing the built environment for, a, for the diversity of people. And I think what's interesting about this conversation is none of us chose, uh, for the most part, what gender we are, right? That's something that, you know, for the most part, comes with who we are. Um, I did not become an architect to be a woman architect. And so it took me a really long time to be comfortable with that as a notion. And it wasn't until I realized that part of my power in being a female architect is to inspire others, right? And it was when I sort of understood that as a notion that I felt more comfortable with, with identifying in that way. Um, Harvard Business Review did a great study about diversity. And, and I want to expand this conversation a little bit beyond gender, but any type of diversity, whether it's socioeconomic diversity, religious diversity, racial diversity, um, economic, oh sorry, I said econ um, education, right, geographic, there, there's a wide spectrum about it and that people from different perspectives actually create more creative solutions 
And so why wouldn't you have mm -hmm. a diverse gender business? Because that's the world we live in. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, I, you touched on actually the idea of race. And I mean, I, certainly it's been in the media over the past decades, and it's something that uh, is applicable tonight too, because ideally within a generation or two, people won't any longer understand why we would be talking about this. Um, but we actually happen to be in the generation or two where that change or that kind of catalyzing moment is happening, uh, which is why, as you pointed out, in a couple of the sectors of our industry, particularly interior design and architecture, sort of that change has already gone a long way. Um, maybe less so in construction, and that's something we can talk about tonight. Is there something about the kinds of jobs or the levels of jobs that are in that part of the industry that's making this more challenging? Uh, is it just something that has been traditional for much longer and therefore the notions are just beginning to change? Uh, but I, I agree with you that it's like, why wouldn't you, but happily or unhappily, we're in the, sort of the time and place where we need to sort of address these things out loud, which is, I think, why we're here. Uh, Catherine, you uh, had sort of, and uh, Paula, um, sort of looking back at what Vaughn was saying uh, about paths into the industry and kind of the way um, uh, male and female people might or might not think, uh, which might be socially derived or it might be biological, we don't really know. Um, your own paths into design and running your own firms, uh, which in both of your cases happen to be largely female at this point, do you have sort of a, an outlook on this kind of based on what we've been talking about? Hmm. Um. There are eight people in my firm, and seven are women, and um, and we have one male. And I find it really interesting to have his perspective, and um, it, it's great. And it would be lovely if we could have, you know, more males in our industry. Um, um, definitely a construction site. It's very very different, and. Um, um, I'm off topic completely. <laughs> no, that's quite all right. <laughs> um, all topics are open. Yeah, so. <laughs> I mean, you had mentioned actually when we uh, spoke last week, kind of preparing for this, mm -hmm. that one of the challenges you had was particularly finding or getting young women who had a certain amount of practical experience in the field yes. and on job sites. And I think that is very germane to this. I mean, is that, why exactly is that a challenge or what are the things that make it difficult for that to happen early on and naturally? So I, I, I liken it perhaps to the way, the environment in which people grow up, right? So everybody has a different experience, a different family, it, um, everyone's family looks different and, and behaves differently. And so some people grow up sort of around, um, you know, maybe their dads are carpenters or their dads are handy and other people grow up in um, environments where they're not. Um, so somehow along the line, as Vaughn was saying, they, those um, trades seem to be more male dominated. Um, so I wonder if, you know, growing up in the, in the 70s, 60s and 70s, um, you know, I saw my dad all the time, you know, um, 
he was an engineer and he was in his workshop and I, I was very in, in, interested in that type of thing and so that carried with me and then I see um, others that work in my firm there's another young woman and she grew up her dad is a contractor and so it's sort of in her blood and you know I, I think that that happens in many families where um, you know my husband's in the footwear industry and two of my children are following that path and some families have a lot of you know policemen in their in their um, you know family so I think part of that is an environmental um, learn, learned behavior where you're comfortable around things of that sort and we are of the generation that you said that you know we're changing and certainly um, you know in the 70s it was it was different all of a sudden you know women we would play sports differently and we were in you know um, I remember being in college and demanding that we'd have a women's ski team because we only had a men's ski team so I think you know it, it's a learned behavior and something that people are subjected to and so as we become adults and somehow fall into our professions it um, you know it you're looking back within and trying to have experiences and so this is what I see in my firm that really there's only one woman um, besides myself that had some sort of affiliation and understanding of what the construction world was even about um, and so the others came from a different perspective. Perhaps it was an art background. Perhaps it was, um, so it, it, it's just different. I think that informs us as to who we are and how, you know, we learn in, in our... Yeah, and actually... Well, can, I actually yeah. can I actually pick up on that? Um, <clears throat> I, I kind of heard your question slightly differently about the, the, the experience part of it. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, which was about what are your experiences like as a young a young person of either, whether man or woman, in architecture in general and getting experience in the field. And there's this time when you're, um, you know, you're out of school and you have your intern job and you're drafting bathroom elevations and you're trying to do a stair detail and you're trying to figure out all this stuff. And um, at a certain point, you know, you're, you're ready. You're, well, now the licensing stuff is a little bit different, but you, know, you go through these periods and you're getting, you're getting more and more experience, but you always, the, the problem with the, is always how do you get in the field and get the experience? Like, so that you can actually, like, I feel like I'm constantly saying, you know, like, what do, these lines mean something, you know, what does that line mean? What does this little X mean? It means a stud. What does this mean? It means flashing. And that little phase where you're sort of three or four years into your, your, your career and you need to be in the field, but the way that the fees are structured and the amount of money that it takes to put the right number of people in the field and the amount of liability that rests on the architect's shoulders um, at that phase of the project means that putting somebody young and inexperienced in the field is a huge liability for the architect and incredibly expensive at which point you know if you've got <clears throat> if there's really very few ways of structuring a fee where you, unless you're just doing it straight up hourly and very few people have that um, that luxury <clears throat> that when you're that far along in the process you have the financial f freedom given fee structures and how <laughs> how much people don't value architecture in the in the great wide world and they're willing to pay their lawyers $800 an hour but not their architects, don't get me started. Um, but, uh, Another talk there, I think. Yeah, a whole other thing there. Um, but that is actually a really fundamental thing because like, what makes any of these fields so exciting, at least one of the things that makes them so exciting, is the fact that you're taking these lines on paper and these color things on paper or in the computer, and they become a real thing. And they become a real thing in the real world that real people experience. And that's what's, you know, there's this incredible excitement about that. 
And there is this phase where it's really hard to get over that hump to get that experience. And you know, sometimes you can get it by going and doing construction. And a lot more graduate programs have these experiences where you can at least get in the field. <clears throat> and sometimes people just end up having to go and build stuff themselves. I mean, I was terrified of millwork drawings. They always like I heart palpitations when I heard the term millwork drawings because they mm -hmm. terrified me until I built my own kitchen. Like, and we got plywood and we built all the cabinets and I learned how the box goes together. And now I sit there with every young person that's in my office and I'm like, all right, I'm gonna give you my little cabinetry like spiel. It's a box with a face on it. Like, it's not terrifying. Mm -hmm. And then, and, and, but it wasn't until I actually built cabinetry that that stuff made a difference. And that's an incredibly difficult period in a career. And when we had like, every time there's been that, the recession, like in whatever, we had the dot com bust and we had, you know, the horrible 2008 to, you know, whatever, 12. When you lost these vast people, not only in the profession because of the economy, but you lost a lot of this experience of being on a construction site because people couldn't get there and because it wasn't getting built. And then they leave the profession for a lot of other reasons. But I think that that, <clears throat> that critical phase is really important in the development of really good architects and designers and how they can bring the wealth of experience to the table that they know what they're drawing, and they know what they're designing. Right. I want to get back to Vaughn in just a second, but actually first for Emily, I mean, you also are in architecture. I think your experience may be slightly different from Paula's and Catherine's in that I think you've tended to work for larger firms, um, which involves slightly different dynamics. I mean, is yeah. that kind of challenge also true for your development experience? Well, it's funny. I actually, I worked for two large firms in New York City. And then I worked for Aldofo Perez in Newton for three years. And I have to say, Aldofo was one of the most amazing people I ever worked for. Because you know, talk about being on the job site, I think it was like day two. Um, and I, that intimacy of seeing the house, working with the clients, you know, frankly, sometimes dealing, you know, with their kids and, and all of the mess that sort of goes with that. Um, but it's messy and it's beautiful and working directly with the contractor. And um, we worked with Peter Bentley, uh, who passed away. Um, and I remember one time, and of course this was back when the fax machine was the way to get information <laughs> quickly to each other. Um, I had done a quick little sketch and it was for a custom door jam and I left the B off of jam, and Peter never let me live it down. He calls it, he goes, jam, J-A-M, and I'll never make that mistake again. And so there was sort of this <laughs> intimacy um, and hands-on nature to my, to my first job here in Boston that then allowed me to go back to larger firms, um, or I would say medium-sized firms, and and then use, use that knowledge. Um, I, it is a challenge in uh, a firm of a certain size to make sure that people get that hands-on experience. Uh, and and in the point. pictures tonight, you'll see there's one of a team that I recently took to a site visit two weeks ago. Um, we're working on a 93,000 square foot charter high school in Mattapan. And we had about a design team of eight when, when things were really going. And a lot of emerging professionals, and they hadn't been to a job site yet. So you have to consciously yeah. take yeah. moments and say, no, it's actually really important for you to understand that this is not hypothetical. 
this has ramifications. Oh, yeah. And there's nothing like um, having to deal with a change order that was a result of your own work to really hit that home, right? But I, I felt lucky that I had that experience and also that accountability because it, it translated to that. Um, and in, you know, if we go back to the gender issue, I think um, for me, the gender issue has become more of uh, a conflict or a barrier as I rose in my career. It wasn't the issue necessarily when I was starting out. It's become a more of a complicated issue as I advanced. So it's, for me, it's a mid-career. Great. I'd like to know more about why, because I actually feel like it's less of an issue the older I get. Well, you own your own firm. Now we're Is it less of an issue for you as you get older? Um, well, it might be partly that I'm like way more comfortable with it and I'm way more used yeah. to it, although at a certain point, I mean, I'm just going to say to a couple people, like, I've, I've basically only worked for women for most of my career. I can count on one hand the number of men I've worked for, so um, I've had some really incredible role models as women. Um, but I've also gotten really used to, you know, you show up on a job site and, you know, like, yep, hi, I'm an architect. And, and being able to kind of make to, to kind of make jokes with guys that have issues with it or are like grumpy about it or whatever and just kind of like take it on stride. Whereas yeah. when I was younger, I didn't have the confidence to do that, which was mostly a knowledge-based thing. I feel like I'm echoing. Yeah. Um, but I think that the more confident I've gotten with my ability to you know, deal with construction, deal with details, deal with consultants, deals with owners, and, and the more experience I get, the more the gender Really I, my experience has been the same. I think my confidence has grown over the. Like, I'm, I'm always a much more nervous 22 year old uh, on site um, than I am now. And I think uh, that the skills and the confidence in you doing your own job. I think the conflict for me is more about agency and significance, and and making sure that the work that I do is work that, frankly, makes me happy. Right. Uh, and I think. Being able to choose the people I work with, having the significance, and my day-to-day -day work has the bigger picture in mind, and also the flexibility to do all those other things um, that, that make me me besides my day job. Yeah. Well, to talk a little bit about the people who are on the job site every day, um, Vaughn, just from kind of the building perspective and the subcontractors, because uh, we have a lot of people from all of those uh, uh, aspects of the industry here. Are there particular challenges that you've experienced or that you see uh, for younger women getting into the trades or wanting to get into the trades or even thinking about getting into the trades? You know, it's interesting because I did a little bit of research before this and the uh, I believe it's the Institute for uh, Women uh, women's studies on policy and research. And one of the statistics I was able to glance through a study that they had done in 2013 is that only 4% of the people in the construction industry are women, okay? But yet they are the majority in terms of population, but only 4% are involved in the construction industry. So in the study, it was heavily weighted towards uh, a lot of respondents were union members. Probably 60 or 70 percent of them were in the union, and it was 30, 40 percent were independent. 
and uh, various reasons were given as to why there were not more women from a woman's perspective. And a lot of that revolved really around pathways into the construction industry for women, trying to find a way. Either the women that were involved had a mentor, whether it was a relative, whether it was someone in school, someone who mentored them and gave them an introduction into the industry. Myself as my grandfather was a woodworker, a carver at seven years old. He was my introduction in the construction industry. So I'm sure if I had been the first one in my family was female, she'd have been introduced into it also. Whether she would have pursued that or not, I don't know. But I pursued that because it was something that appealed to me. So I think mentorship is very important, being able to take someone young under your wing and taking them on through. I have an associate who has worked with me now, a young lady, for about uh, 15 years. She's worked with me. And she's a graduate from Notre Dame in architecture. She wanted to get involved in project management. Architecture was not quite what she thought it would be. So she was literally glued to my hip the first five years in our working relationship. And I was trying to download onto her construction all those things that she would not have the ability to do by being on site and working with your hands and working with the tools, you know, explaining to her how's a foundation constructed, how is steel put together in a foundation, how do they pour concrete, how do they remove the forms, literally from the ground on up. I was very fortunate in my career, I have a five-year degree in landscape architecture and a minor in architectural history, start out in architecture. So I understand the design perspective and where designers are coming from, and that's greatly aided me in the uh, construction end of things, being able to have that vernacular on both sides of being able to bridge that. But one of the things, again, that is so important is being able to take and mentor someone to get them those skills if they don't have the ability to wear a set of nail bags in the field. And, you know, I, I hear this constantly from my contemporaries. Geez, you know, here's another architect who's never been in the field working. And unfortunately, you know, in the curriculum, they don't have that ability. Uh, you know, you're, you're trying to squeeze uh, four years or five years in and get all the design curriculum that has to go in. So there isn't a whole lot of time for uh, uh, cooperative work out there. I know some colleges do offer it. Uh, and a lot of people, as I was talking with Catherine, a lot of people in the design fields have undergraduate degrees in other fields and go on into architecture through a graduate program. So now you're at only a two-year program. So again, trying to get introduced into the physical aspect of construction is pretty hard unless you have someone that's out there to be able to take you under their wing and mentor you. Great. Um, well, now to get, I've got one question over here, which we'll get to in just one quick, well, actually, go ahead, Julie. We'll, um, I'm going to piggyback off of the idea of mentorship. And so my question is, I mentor a number of women in the industry which is interesting for me because I'm not an architect or an engineer or a designer. 
I do consulting, and I want to touch on the point of the imposter syndrome mm -hmm. and how a lot of women in the industry were talking about gaining confidence. So, as a mentor, how do you tell women, yes, you belong here, like you're not an imposter, you belong here, your voice is valued, your work is valued. Um, how do you mentor women in the industry to say to them, you have every right to be here as everybody else? And, and forget that there's this sort of imposter syndrome that women tend to get within male-dominated industries. I think you, the, well, the, one of the things that's incredibly important, and this kind of goes to, I've had some young men with the same problem too, is you, you have to put yourself out there. You have to be, expect though that when you fail, you're gonna get criticism and you can't take it personally. Because the biggest problem is when somebody try something and it doesn't go well and I mean I can't tell you how many times this has happened to me where you go up to somebody and you're like oh god no that's no don't know it's completely wrong you got to do it this way and when instead of being like and actually I'll say I think more women actually take criticism better than some young men um, that but the ability to learn from a mistake not take it personally but don't make the same mistake a second time and that I perhaps more people are afraid of failing or being criticized or not being seen as doing well or being perfect. And that's probably the biggest piece of advice I'd give to a young young person. Yeah, Catherine, you'd also mentioned that you had well, a little yeah, bit of a follow-up follow to, to what you said, which was interesting that um, and a young woman who works in my office, um, her dad is a builder, uh, it was a construction company, and she was actually, she just told me the other day, like after we got off our phone call on Friday, and I was like, you know, because everybody could hear my half of the phone call. So I was talking about what had happened on the call. And um, she said, yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, my dad owns a construction business, which I knew, but I had forgotten. And um, I always thought it would be really cool to go into construction management, but he really encouraged me to just go into interior design because it would be a better thing for me to be doing when I got married and had kids. Uh, and I was like, wow, well, <laughs> that, like, yeah, that. Um, I don't know what you really do with that, except I was pretty profoundly like, I sat there for another 15 minutes or something, just thought about that statement, which was like, wow, that's what you're, that's, that's. Yeah, but the yeah. ironic thing is, I know so many female construction managers who have kids who thrive. Like, that's, that's sort of the yeah. sad part of it. Well, and the thing I thought was also kind of sad about it, and I, I think actually her comment came up after something I said, which was that like, it's, this, the expectations of the world around you are, especially for young women, so powerful and it's the society and the socio-cultural expectations about what you're going to do and what you're going to be. And young women aren't expected to go into construction. They aren't expected to go and to do like the hard, difficult things. And um, that one reason I think I am where I am, there's a lot of reasons I think I am where I am right now, is my mother, I'm 50, my mother has never once in 50 years asked me when are you getting married and having kids? I'm neither. I'm not, I'm neither married nor have kids, but that's not because of that. But there was. She's asked me, "How's your 401k plan doing? How are your applications for graduate school? How's that licensing coming?" But never once asked me that. And the difference between that kind of an approach to how you treat a young woman and the expectation that you know there's a different path that is the most important path for you is this other path. Um, it doesn't mean that this young woman who's working for me, she's incredibly talented, she's incredibly smart, she's doing incredibly well. Um, it doesn't mean that none, none of these things are gonna happen, but that there is this level of expectation in the world around about what you're supposed to be and who you're supposed to be. And that it can, that 
you know, anyway. I don't really know what, there's no right or that wrong. That goes back to the yeah. environmental influences, yeah. right? Yeah. But it's, it's kind of within the person to figure out who they are. And I think a strong woman, um, you know, I grew up in a house where, um, you know, I wanted to be an architect. I didn't have that opportunity. And, you know, my mother didn't think I needed to go to college because, um, not that I need to get married and have children, but she just thought, you should be a secretary. And I thought, why would I do that? And so, you know, um, it, it's just within my own self that, I, that you know, I became more self-confident and, you know, and I have a stronger personality and, and so you can overcome a lot. So sometimes, you know, maybe it's those um, instances where people are fed this information and they start to believe it. Yeah, and this actually, uh, these last two comments, they, they tie into one of two kind of fairly practical matters that I want to make sure we touch on uh, before we run out of time. Uh, and this is one that came up actually on our call last week, and in fact the two of you had slightly different takes on this, uh, which is the impact of kind of the idea of work-life balance mm -hmm. and how that have in very practical terms somewhat different meanings for male employees versus female employees. I don't think we have different points of view on it. We just were more, more different how quickly it was going to come up. Right, or how, <laughs> um, how, how quickly we would big end up an on that issue it would be. You know, Catherine, I mean, you, you mentioned that you have uh, an employee that you've been working with, uh, I believe, who is, was up for a project management uh, kind of role but is also now possibly going to be taking some time off for or be working part-time uh, for family obligations. And so if, if I'm remembering, or maybe this was, no, it was, I think, yeah. it, was, oh, it, was me. I think um, it was you. But I don't think it's, I mean, I think it's probably pretty standard. Um, well, no, no, it probably I mean, is pretty standard, but I just, is, is it, are there issues, I mean, are there issues here that are of practical concern to people who run companies about, well, yeah. you know, how do you arrange your staffing yeah. Absolutely. You're, you're basing that off the assumption that a project manager has to work 40 hours a week. Right. Well, that, that was the underlying part of the conversation yeah. was, okay, we've got somebody who wants to work for three days well, a week wait, for the next four years. What roles can that person legitimately or helpfully do? On right. A, I think you know, that, that what, what it comes down to is, like, how do you have, like, as a small, there are a couple different things, there's a lot of different things here. Um, the conversation we were having at the time was like, you know, the, the big elephant in the room is like women in any industry, and this is this is independent of architecture, design, or construction. Like I talk to my friends who are lawyers or in have MBAs or in or doctors. I had dinner last night with two women who were both psychiatrists at, at um, major medical centers and they both had the same thing. That like there is a huge change over the course of any professional thing and there's and there's just, that's just sort of a given and it's independent of architecture. Um, the particular situation I was talking about was that, you know, we've got, when you're very small and you have, um, like, there's a woman who's been working with me who is going, you know, she's going on maternity leave and she's going to end up shifting the kind of role, the time frame that she can play in the office, um, which changes what I can actually do when I've got four staff in terms of how do you manage projects because, you know, you can't, you know, especially if you know that someone is leaving, you, it's very hard to say, I'm going to, you know, get you all ramped up on this and then have to get somebody else all ramped up on it. So you need to plan. I mean, professionally, you need to plan around these things. So you plan that way. Um, it just means that it's a, it's a challenge for advancing, you know, the, the typical sort of process of advancing, like, 
the career and the pay and all that other things that go into that statement, that go into those normal expectations. There was a really interesting um, story on, I think it was WBUR, might have been Friday or Saturday, and they were talking about the shifting nature of um, the workplace demographic as people are getting older. These, no these understandings that we have that I think we're all pretty much operating with, which is that your career pretty much happens. You know, you get out of school, you do your development, you, you build your career in your 30s, which is also the same time you're building a family. And you know, 30s through 40s, and then you kind of ramp it down, and that that you know, you retire at 60 or 65, and then well, then you have 30 years left. That there's this changing nature of what the workforce is, and what your how many careers are you going to have over your um, over the over your lifetime? And it was it must have been Friday or maybe it was Saturday because it was after our call, and I got to thinking about like, well, that's actually really interesting because. I actually approached that conversation when we were having about the, the work-life balance with this expectation that, oh, that's right, well, we're all going to retire at 60 or 65, and then we're going to sit around and play tiddlywinks for 30 years. And as architects, we can't afford to do that. But um, the, I started to think about the conversation that we've been having about the nature of that, expectations of um, when you, what is success and, and what is, um, is this gender, this, this missing, what is it, the missing 20% or the missing, there's something the is, it's like the missing X percent or whatever of women in the field. Um, it's the missing 32. Missing 32, yeah. okay. <laughs> and um, maybe with this changing demographic of age and you know, extended retirement, we're going to take on a different understanding of how that role and what your traditional career is, and that maybe that will start to shift. That maybe this expectation that you know, well, if you don't, if you're out of the profession when you're, by the time you're 45, that you can't get back into it because you know you're going to have to get out of it again at 60. Um, maybe that's going to change, and maybe there's going to be more ability to have these like longer, um, rolling careers. I that think can that is yeah. happening because yeah. Um, yeah. you know the way that we work and people are becoming more flexible, um, and. We value people that have experience, and so you know maybe the thing to do. I mean, there's so many models out there, business models where you can bring consultants in for a short amount of time, right? So maybe that's what we have to do to plan ahead. Um, you know, in my office, we think we could have a tsunami of three women going out on mat leave, and you know, and we're gonna we're gonna plan for it, and um, you know, but bringing somebody in for that you know that short duration, you know, and then shifting roles, you know, I um, would have to do. You know different things because you're gonna have to definitely be in that field constantly, and but right. you have to you just plan for it, I think, right. and, yeah. I and think then the being subtext. flexible for yeah. them. And so Sylvia Ann Hewlett wrote a book about ten years ago called On Ramps and Off Ramps, and I, I think her her greatest point was that women are the sort of the missing piece to fully optimizing our labor force. And Vaughn and I talked about this a little bit. Um, I think in order to increase the numbers. We need to increase awareness and understanding that these are careers that everyone can pursue. And sometimes it has to go as far back as K through 12, right? right. Especially in underrepresented uh, populations. If you don't know you can be an architect, if you don't even know what an architect is, or an interior designer is, or a union, how can we expect someone to make that choice when they're 18, when they're 22? Uh, and so. It's interesting that I think part of it is fixing the workplace, 
but also being proactive and, and being out there and saying, this is a profession that is open to everyone, and let me tell you about it. Let's get going, all that fun stuff. And, and I do want to say one thing about Im imposter syndrome. Uh, one of the things that I found incredibly useful is to notice a name. So when you have that moment of uncomfortability, like name it. What, what are you feeling? And then do a gut check. And is this, the like, is this really my reality? Or is this reality out there? And something that can really help that is peer-to-peer -peer mentoring so that you can, you can say, look, I felt really uncomfortable in this meeting. Is this my perception or was this reality? And I think talking through those things, many times you'll see that somebody else has had that experience and it really wasn't so bad. And so being able to, women in the construction field especially, can feel isolated because you don't have anyone else who looks like you. And sometimes it's just about finding that friend or, or having that conversation. Okay, well, I think oh, actually we need to, we've yeah, got a few questions before we get to you, Vaughn, if that's okay. Sure. Um, Hi, Julie Wood from the Leading Edge Drapery. I am currently the WCAA national president, and you were talking about um, getting people in the field and then um, educating grades one through eight and younger folks, and I really think um, we need to be looking at the trade associations. Um, you can't do it all as for your employees, but maybe those trade associations, we've been starting to do that, can go out and, and start to educate the population and say that this is a viable career, no matter what career that, you know, that you're trying to, to educate them about. We had apprentices <coughs> long ago, and that has all died out. So maybe the trade associations, just a thought, yeah. could be the... The, the bridge between the, the um, education and then career. So we're seeing that in some of the schools that we do. Actually, we're, we're working with Shamit on one of the schools, and there's a superintendent who loves to do a, um, a look board. So like whatever's being installed that week, he'll put a piece of it in the hallway so the kids can understand or like challenge them. And I think ways in which you can, maybe, how many STEM opportunities are there in the construction field? Like, holy cow, there's like a million math problems out there that you could, my son does half of them. But you know, like there's such an opportunity for you to engage just regular curriculum and then also talk about how construction contributes to that. Well, I'm on two boards here with Bragby, the Builders Association, and then the Remodelers Association. And one of the key things that both organizations are focusing on is workforce development. After the recession, there's a 40% labor shortage of skilled labor in the construction industry. Traditionally, home building and construction has led the economy out of recessions. It isn't happening now because we do not have the capacity to expand in every one here is experiencing this. It's either in a job delay, uh, you know, when you've, you've only got three carpenters, you need five in there to meet a schedule. Somebody gets sick, somebody stubs their toe. Guess what? It's going to slow things down. So we're, we're experiencing that. So how do we address that? A uh, couple things we're working on in those organizations is the Youth Career Development Day, which Nari, we held the first one a couple of years ago. We had about 500 youths from the area trade schools attend uh, sort of an exposure 
conference where we had different uh, vendors, uh, construction companies, people from different disciplines exposing these young kids to the industry. In the recent one that we had just this past fall, we had about 800 youths attend. We're trying to reach out to some of the colleges, uh, such as Wentworth and the like, that have some of these programs. And the interesting thing that happened this past year, I was manning a booth finari addressing any questions that any of the uh, kids had. And the majority of the individuals that came up to the booth were young women. And these young women were asking, you know, about opportunities in the industry. And for right now, if you have carpentry skills, you could walk onto a construction site and demand $25 an hour. Lead carpenters, $35, $36 an hour, okay? It's because there are none out there. So this is a wonderful time to be moving into the trades because if you got into the trades within two or three years as a laborer, you might begin to progress where you're starting to make $25, $30 an hour and you don't have a $200,000 college bill behind you. So I think there is this analogy I use quite often of expectation and delivery. When the two come together like this, there's never a problem, whether it's design, whether it's a construction schedule, whether it's a product delivery, whatever it is. When they're like this, either the expectation needs to be adjusted or the delivery needs to be adjusted. So kind of addressing that earlier issue about mentorship and the like, you know, having a safe place is a great opportunity for any young person coming into the industry that, you know, you have someone who's kind of brutal, dressed you down on a job site, you know? I don't know how many times I hear, you know, if that architect shows up again today, my head's gonna explode, okay? Because they can't understand the details, okay? And maybe someone gets dressed down. And having that mentor that you can go to, hey, you know, this happened, hey, come here. Let me tell you about this, okay? This is how it comes, but you know what? You're smart, you're young, you're resilient. Take and put that into your compendium, okay? As knowledge, okay? Knowledge is power. We want to empower you. We want, whether you're a young man or a young woman, it doesn't make any difference, okay? You're an individual, you're a human being, you are trying to take and make your way and find your way in this industry. So having that mentorship, having someone and having that safe place to go to, I think is really important. And expressing that as a mentor to those younger people that look, if you have a problem, I know my associate, the first time I brought on the construction site, I told her, look Heather, you're gonna take and hear things. And if you go out and you hear some guy making a snide comment, a sexual comment, if you go up and hold him accountable and you need to do it immediately because you need to nip this in the butt, I can go on up as your mentor and I can certainly dress him down, but what's that gonna do? That's gonna take the power away from you. I'm trying to empower you as an individual. So you need to go up to him and you need to tell him, what did you just say? What did I just hear? Boy, all of a sudden you see that 275 pound construction worker kind of <laughs> dress himself down, okay? Because someone is holding him accountable. I think that addresses this whole Me Too thing going in where people are finally finding a voice, okay? People are finding a voice and they're able to express that voice. 
And I think getting all of this out in the open is the healthiest thing we can do as a society. And I hope it continues going that direction. OK, we had uh, one more question back here. Well, I was going to say, listening, this has been a great panel, that in addition to gender, I feel like a lot of this is generational. And I have the sense that as younger men come into the trades, and other industries have embraced paternity leave, that the men are also going to have that whatever break in their careers. It's going to maybe the playing field will level out a little bit yeah. as people are advancing through. And I just wanted to know what you guys all thought about quick that. Quick data statistic. So my, my quick data statistic about this is um, the AI did a diversity study um, about perceptions of gender and race. And one of the things that struck them was they asked architects uh, across ages whether they felt women were underrepresented or not. And they were very struck by the fact that younger males didn't perceive it as a problem as much as older males. And you kind of go, like, well, why is that? Well, it's because schools right now have parity. So women are entering architecture schools at the same rate, right? And they're entering the profession at the same rate, and then they tend to leave the profession around zero to three years and 10 to 15. There's a lot of reasons for that. But think of it as a young male saying, well, we had parity in school. Why is this a problem? And I think that's one of the things that we do need to sort of keep track of. Yes, we will become more diverse. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. Mm -hmm. But uh, it's males who are mid-career or more advanced in their career that perceive it as a bigger issue. And I think that's interesting when you look at generational dynamics. Absolutely. We've got also one more question. Yeah, of course. <clears throat> to return to the general issue um, on the job site, I think the most important thing to focus on, focus on, sorry about that, to focus on is early education as opposed to, I mean, we work in almost an antique industry, and I know things evolve very quickly, but the, some of the people that you deal with on a day-to-day -day basis might not have the most contemporary values that a lot of us in this room uphold. So we need to start young. You need to start with the children, because even me, as one of the younger representatives maybe in this room, I still grew up with Carpenter John. There wasn't any plurality in saying that women could have the option to do that. So of course there's a struggle. And someone of my age would say, there's no, no problem with having women in the workplace. However, that's not the way that people are educated. So if you want to make change, you have to start from the bottom. It's a lot easier than trying to start from the top. It's like framing a house. You want to jack up the second floor? Not really going to work when the whole house is built. Yeah, or you have exceptional people like Heather that change minds. That's right. And sometimes you do it through individuals and through great hard work. That's a good, actually, segue um, into one other important thing I wanted to get to. We've got a room largely full of people who run small firms in this industry in all different parts of it. Uh, so I wanted to kind of open up the conversation a little bit to all of you. Are there things that you have been doing or thinking about in your own company that you would like to share your experience or advocate for that are ways to make the culture of your firm or your way of doing business more amenable to potential female teammates coming on. 
Kevin? So I'll start with the fact that everybody sees me at these events, uh, Kevin Legassi with the Legassi Group. We are a women-owned business. My wife would be here. She had another event tonight. And one of the things, and you guys touched on, and I think it's really important, is it's, it's corporate culture. This is all about corporate culture. And I'll, I'll tell you a quick story. We have a very diverse workforce, and um, in our early stages, we had seven, six or seven people, um, of which one, um, two of which were women that worked with us. And the first woman is a project manager. She's running one of our largest projects. We're a construction company. She is pregnant with her first child. And as she is getting closer and closer to her due date, I can see tension. And so I brought her into my office and I said, what's in your mind? And she goes, you know, I'm trying to work through the finances because I'm going to be out for about 12 weeks. And I said, okay. She goes, um, I, don't, I don't know, you know, well, I'm not going to be getting paid, so I'm not really sure how this is going to work. And I said, what do you mean you're not going to get paid? She says, well, I'm going to be out on leave. And I said, you're going to get paid? Why did you ever think that we weren't going to pay you? I know that's what law allows us to do. I said, you're part of our family. You're part of our culture. You're part of our company. And all of a sudden, the, the sort of the relief of here's something I don't have to worry about. And she said, can I ask for one thing? I said, sure. She goes, can I get an iPad? I said, absolutely. Why? Well, if I'm in bed, I can work off of that easier. Now, I didn't think about that as an investment. I didn't think about that. My wife and I didn't think about this because we made this decision collectively. We thought about that as the right thing to do. And our employee started working two, three, four days after the child. I was getting emails. I said, stop. You don't need to do this. She felt comfortable and empowered. She's had her second child. She's part of our senior staff. It's the culture of the companies. And I, I agree with the gentleman that had the comment about, yes, it starts early. But it has to continue to the culture of the companies. And it's not just women. It's any aspect of that. The, 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 the business owners have the opportunity to set the culture of their company. And that's what needs to change. If you are bottom line driven profit only, you're not going to get there. And we are not. The what we're, our philosophy is and we have plenty of work we have plenty of things that we do but we we, we value family time off if if husbands want to coach uh, little league teams the, when you begin to do that what you get back from your employees is incredible and that's where the culture's got to change it has to change at the top and that has to filter down and fortunately my wife and I both believe in that and that's made a huge difference in our, in, in our company. And I imagine everybody here probably feels the same way. I know a lot of competitors are, are the same way. But I think that's where it's got to start. And, and I'd be curious to see if you guys all own businesses. It is. It's difficult. You've got to manage if somebody's going out. But it doesn't make a difference if somebody's having knee surgery or heart surgery. You've got to deal with that. That is not gender specific. It's what we deal with as business owners. And I, I just think that's where it has to start. There's, yep. oh, oh. Um, there's a, a friend of mine um, who I'm sure Emily knows, Diana Nicholas, and she was at um, one of the big landscape, uh, one of the big architecture firms, I think, that was then bought by Stantec. And she and her um, a business partner started a firm called Sam Architecture. And they, they, probably about the same time I started mine, which about four years ago. And one of the founding principles of their firm was that like they don't have vacation time or 
personal time or maternity leave or anything. They're just like, we're a bunch of professionals here and we all have lives, we all have responsibilities and we are set up to work remotely and people take the time they need for their personal lives and they do what needs to be done in their professional lives. Now it takes a huge amount of management to get that to work correctly, but they set their firm up with that expectation, understanding that like as the world changes, we no longer have like, you know, the, the whole nine to five, you know, traditional model of, you know, you have to be in the workplace and, you know, you send faxes to each other and all that is, is not really the way of the future. Um, and they started that firm with that setup. And that's actually been a pretty inspiring kind of model. It, it takes a lot of infrastructure to make work. But I do think there's an increasing movement towards that as people try and figure out how to make that that work. Um, and we're certainly set up right now, I mean, and just, you know, <laughs> we're young, we're still getting our feet moving on this stuff. But like, you know, we have laptops that, you know, when we have, like, when it looks like it might snow, everybody takes the laptops home and can work remotely. Um, you know, when one of my colleagues was on maternity leave, like she took, yeah, like her laptop, she had it the entire time, um, could touch base anytime that she needed to, uh, currently has one child at home and another on the way, and, you know, takes her laptop home with her every day, and then sometimes we just get a call and she's like, I'm not going to make it in today, I'll be working from home. Um, and it's, it's working fine. Um, you know, I think that is going to increasingly happen, um, at least certainly with firms where that's important. Um, at least for me, I know we are all women, which was not, it was not part of the game plan. It wasn't like I had a mission to do that, but we have become all women, and I think it's actually an incredibly, I hope, it's a supportive environment for everybody knowing that. Um, and I think in, in order to continue to foster environments where that is the case, you do have to be you know, creative, problem solving about how you get work done. Um, flexible, yeah. that's, that's yeah. the biggest word is flexibility. Absolutely, Vaughn, you wanted to follow up on this? Yeah, I think one of the things that addresses, uh, you know, as contemporary business owners, uh, how we look at getting things done. Uh, again, my associate, she has five little ones at home and she wants to work. She can't work full time, but yet I take and restructure my work and my work schedule and the workflow so that accommodates her schedule. Now that most of her children are gone between nine and two, she is nine and two every day, she can dedicate towards getting things done. And after eight o'clock at night, and I usually crash by nine, so she takes over the evening shift, but she may work from nine to two o'clock. Sometimes she's worked through the night. You know, if we've got a report that has to get out and the like. So, you know, realizing that your employees are assets and that they are a finite asset, they're not an unlimited asset, I think is a first step in being able to try and work uh, around those parameters, understanding what that asset can do, what the parameters are, and trying to work to maximize it. As you know, one of my mentors said years ago, look, you know, when you start getting older and you can't carry a 30-pound nail bag around and put two bundles of shingles on your shoulder anymore, you need to start working smarter instead of harder. And I think that's the 
the analogy here for all of us is trying to maximize the potential that exists with you and within your employees. Yeah, and if I were to tie the three together, I think it's meeting people as individuals and, and not making assumptions that because someone has five children that they can't work. You know, right. asking the questions, understanding, and Kevin, just like your employee just assumed that you weren't gonna pay her, like sometimes you just need to state it mm -hmm. to, to have the anxiety down. One of the things with pay equity, right, which that classic uh, difference between uh, the, the pay that men typically get and women is that firms that have done pay equity and, and do consciously make that effort unless you explicitly say it to your employees, they will assume that that's not the case because that's the commonality in our culture, right? So you have to be very explicit and say, we do reviews, we pay people equally, this is something we take important. So don't make assumptions, and if you do take measures to be equitable, say it. That's important Absolutely. because people yes. might assume that you don't. Yeah, I think we have uh, time for one more question here, and then Hi. need to sum up a little bit. Um, my name is Leslie Francis. I'm fairly new to the design world. I, I started off at Discover Tile, um, just selling tile. Um, but what I, my question, I've, I've since then moved on to the Divine Design Center, and I'm learning a lot more now. The scope has been broadened quite a bit. But my question for you is, when you're in, when you're early on in your career and you're trying to learn all of the little nitty gritty details of everything that really matters going into plans, going into drawings, going into all of those things, you know, you're focused on, you're typically focused on that predominantly. And I feel like there's a gap between the technical part of it and then getting on site. So my question to you is how do you feel that you can bridge the gap when you're still trying to learn the technical portion but you also want to learn the construction portion and all that goes into that side of it? Because really, I don't think that you fully get an understanding for it until you've been on that side. You don't, and, and not only do you not have an understanding but you are in your own world almost. You don't understand what the contractor has to go to go through in order to install this a certain way. You don't understand all of the work that goes into certain things until you've seen it yourself. And um, I'm starting to see that, but I'm just I'm wondering how do you think the best way to pose yourself is in order to get that experience, even if you're still in the nitty gritty of technical and all the little things that ask, you need to ask, know. For. Ask for the opportunity. Yeah. Go to, yeah, you just ask. All right, you could be like Catherine and buy your own house and then go through it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> build I your mean, own there, Build your own is, kitchen. There is yeah. nothing exactly. more totally humbling serious. than building your own kitchen. And I think my first condo, I, I did the plumbing and the electrical for it. Um, don't tell the building inspector. Um, <laughs> right? And then, and then you realize, like, there's certain things I'm willing to pay for. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? oh, yeah. There's a reason there's qualified tradespeople, because they're much better than I am at it. So get your hands dirty and ask. Well, the, the other part of that is, is that it's amazing amongst contractors in the field that if you ask them a question and you're coming in as an architect or as a designer, you ask them a question, they are just, they are ebullient with their knowledge, okay? They want to take and help educate you because number one, it's gonna make their job easier. Number two is they're gonna share their knowledge. 
because guess what? When we take the big dirt nap, okay, all that knowledge goes for naught. So being able to take and express that and share that with the people that you were in contact with, with the people that affect the outcome of your project and the like, you know, it's just, it's that, that whole part of team. You know, I built homes 38,000 square feet. I had 300 workmen a day on site. The number one overriding criteria was to create a work atmosphere where everyone could aspire to doing the best work that they could, okay? Not a punitive atmosphere, but an atmosphere where everyone felt as though they could aspire to something greater because it's amazing and the military does this, okay? When they put you through and you're going through PT, they push you beyond your limits. And all of a sudden you find, guess what? I thought I could only do this. Well, now look what else I could do. So I think it's the same thing professionally, is that all you know is what you know, what you know isn't everything. But as you begin to be pushed to your limits and know that there are resources out there, I think you can aspire and you can acquire the knowledge and aspire to much higher heights than you're presently at. I would definitely agree with like, if, if you're on, if you get the chance to be on a job site, just ask questions. Like the, the first project I had in construction administration, I basically was, I, I knew nothing. I didn't know what I was doing. I felt sick to my stomach every time I got on site. The second project I had construction administration, I started asking lots of questions and not pretending that I knew stuff and not trying to hide behind anything and just being like, I really don't know. What would you do? And I learned, one third of what I learned, I learned building a kitchen and doing the electrical and all that other stuff. Um, easily a third or more than a third of what I learned came from guys on the site. And by treating them with respect, which frankly, if you've ever done construction, you know how much the respect they deserve because it's so hard. And like nothing really sucks more than trying to figure out how to wire that light fixture with your arms over your head for like two hours. Mm -hmm. um, they know a lot and they can teach you a lot if you treat them with a ton of respect. And you'll get a lot of respect in return as a professional um, for doing exactly that. And you'll learn a huge amount and then the rest of it is luck. <laughs> and that actually, I'm afraid, unfortunately, we're kind of running out of time. We need to wrap up. There is some time after this to do a little more drinking and talking, and I hope a lot of you will talk personally with our panelists. Uh, but kind of to sum things up, I mean, one of the main kind of underlying themes I've heard in a lot of the discussion tonight, uh, be it uh, Paula talking about being a role model, um, you know, or Kevin sort of talking about responsibilities as a business owner for, you know, creating an actual family kind of team. Um, really, it's, I mean, one of the main things I've been hearing is basically taking personal responsibility, making a personal commitment to addressing this issue and treating people the way you know deep down they ought to be related to and treated. Uh, is really kind of the fundamental thing we're talking about in a lot of these questions. And happily, almost everybody in this room is in a position of power to make this happen in your own life and in your own company, uh, and therefore in a huge sector of our whole industry. Uh, so I hope with that in mind, you guys will give our panelists a huge hand. Um, and then go out and do it. Thank you very much for coming.